Folks, and welcome to another uh, 2020 edition True Tone Lounge. Today we have, you know, a, a favorite of mine and, uh, you know, one of the great Telecaster players, uh, someone who has, you know, continued to uh, make new and exciting records. And, and, you know, so many times artists will keep making the same record over and over again. And uh, Jim is always experimenting with new things and uh, his his latest album with uh, Luca B Benetti is it uh, Luca Benedetti Benedetti Luca Benedetti I, I apologize uh, oh, it's, it's yeah. fan fantastic it you know it's the the two of them uh, you know sitting down and playing some uh, some kind of jazz standards and uh, I love you know Jim's playing and Jim you know you can hear some of his influences in his playing but he never you know wears them out uh and and just a, a great proponent of the uh, telecaster and uh and and not using a bunch of effects and uh we'll get into all that so for just thank you for doing this jim oh, so thank awesome. you i'm a fan of your show and you know i i love your show i'm a fan so <laughs> well, thanks for having me yeah, I, I, uh, I remember you mentioning the show on an interview that you did with the Fretboard Journal. And, uh, and so in turn, I'm, I'm going to give you know, props to the Fretboard Journal since you <laughs> mentioned them there and to uh, uh, Jason for what a, a great magazine that he does. And, great magazine. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know, I'm, I think the next issue has uh, Leventhal and Roseanne on the cover. So I'll have to you know, pick, pick that up. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So... Uh, one thing I was, I've been interested in how, um, you know, obviously Roy Buchanan was, was a big influence and you, uh, and you met him and he, because he signed the back of your strap. Yeah, it's right up there. Yeah. Well, yeah. Tell, tell us about meeting, you know, one, one of your, your mentors and someone that I guess not, maybe not a mentor, but someone that, you know, that influenced you greatly. Well, um, I can't remember what year it was. It was probably early 80s. And I was still, you know, a young man. And it was pre-internet. And uh, I remember 
I had seen him when I was in high school, which is like 74 or something at the uh, uh, Berkeley Community, whatever it was, arena or something, Coliseum. And it was good, but it was just huge. And um, so a, a number of years later, maybe three or four or five, I was driving up Broadway. This is when I was in San Francisco. And I saw at the Stone, Roy Buchanan, I saw a parking spot. I did a legal U real quick, got in the spot, and ran in the Stone. And Roy was playing. And there wasn't hardly anybody there. And I mean, you just could walk up to the edge of the stage. And the reason why I said it was pre-internet is, I mean, I could actually see what he was doing, which at the time, I mean, you weren't sure, like at the time, at least for me, I wasn't sure if anybody used hybrid picking. Right. Or, and I saw that. And I saw that he bent something from behind the nut. And it was just amazing um, to see. And it was a really good show. Um, you know, they were a little inconsistent, and I used to kind of enjoy that uh, as well. Um, but I ended up just being, I'd go to every show after that. Um, I mean, if there, he was playing, you know, two nights here, two nights here, all in the Bay Area, whatever, an hour and a half away, I'd go down and see that one. And uh, like I said, some of the shows were, a little inconsistent, but they were always kind of fascinating. Um, one time he had like All Hell's Angels uh, in the, the backup band, and there was All Hell's Angels in the audience, which was fine, you know. I mean, it was, I felt fine, but, you know, that was like weird. And another time, some guy brought a Mesa boogie, and um, it was in Ber a Berkeley show, and the guy kept on going on stage and changing the settings. And uh, during like Roy's solos and, but it sounded, the guy was actually improving on it, you know, in a way it was like a little less traditional Roy and real, like almost like a Marshall-y sound. But anyway, one of those shows, I, I brought my, my 60, should I get up and just show it? Sure. My strap. And uh, I knew the doorman and at this place, it was the stone. And, uh, you could see uh, it says live happy Roy Buchanan. And um, I brought this in and, you know, I, I said, hey, can I go backstage after the show? And the guy was like, fine. So they open the, the, you know, the green room door. And I guess I'm like 23, 22. And I just couldn't believe I was seeing him like it was kind of like seeing Abraham Lincoln in 3D, like Roy would turn his head and it would kind of shock me, you know, like I could I see his profile, you know, it was just surreal seeing him because I had just stared at record covers. And again, this was pre-internet. So um, basically, I, I mean, I literally didn't say one single word and I took the guitar out and I sh uh, had a pen. And he said, do you want me to sign it? And I said, you know, I just nodded. And he goes, here. And I go, and he goes, here. And I go, you know, I just couldn't speak. So he signed it. He gave it to me. And I think I went like this, like as a thank you. And I was, as I put the guitar in the case and I was leaving, just euphoric. You know, it was like I, I felt just so naturally high from meeting him. And I got his signature. He goes, hey, he goes, 
drive safely now. And uh, I guess he thought I was like drunk or something. But anyway, that's how I got it signed. And uh, I'm really glad I did, you know, and I played this guitar for, geez, 10 years. When I, when I got it, it was uh, baby blue, it was this color. And this is kind of what happened over the years. And it's a really nice Strat, it's a 62 Strat. So uh, a real nice guitar every now and then if I see like Jeff Beck play or something, I'll be like, I had to play the Strat again, you know, cause the way he uses the uh, vibrato bar so expressively. Um, but anyway, that's the Roy Buchanan story. Yeah, and the, that, you know, incredibly rare to, because that's a matching headstock too, right? Right, um, that is incredibly rare. Uh, I mean, I I uh, I got I I got that. Well, it must have been eighty or something like that. And and it was like Fenders and Fender amps, like went out of style, kind of. You know, it was like Lab Series or whatever. You know, um, they had new stuff, and I had a I can't remember what like a GR something guitar synthesizer. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I liked it, but I never used the synthesizer. I mean, I think I used it, there was fifths or something on top. And I was, you know, starting to kind of get sounds out of it and stuff, just like plugged into the amp. And a lot of times people go, wow, that synthesizer is really great, you know, and I was starting to think like, you know, I, it's actually not the synthesizer, but, you know, I mean, I was... Not that it would make me mad, but I wasn't using it. So uh, I basically traded that for that. And I kind of had a feeling like one would go obsolete before the other. You know, I right. mean, I, I, I've always, always played Fender amps. I mean, it's the only amp I've played through. Um and, uh, you know, I, I played a, a, less, a 54 Les Paul. I mean, when, you know, three, four guitars into my guitar hood. Um, but I've never had a guitar with humbuckings uh, either, ever. You know, uh, it's kind of strange, but I've always liked that Fender sound. And I, I, I really love that guitar. And it, I actually liked it when it was baby blue, even though it's nice to see the uh, color change uh, to whatever it is, kind of a smoky green, I guess. Yeah, it, it looks great. <laughs> it, it does. It plays real good, too. Um, I actually brought it to a session about a year and a half ago. I brought this and I brought that, the strap. And uh, we had to do three or four songs. And on the first song, I used that. And... On the second song, I thought I'd use the telly, and I played it, and I thought, you know, I kind of missed the Strat. And the producer said, hey, why don't you play the Strat? I ended up playing the Strat on all four songs. And, you know, it was like, it's like riding a bike. You know, it's a little different, but, I mean, I played that guitar for 10 years, so doing, you know, grabbing the vibrato bar and everything kind of came back. Yeah. <laughs> Did you find yourself uh, overusing the the tremolo bar when? No, know? I mean I I I wasn't. Um, I use it. I mean, I almost think like this thing, like you know, the whole you know. Uh, I saw eleventh. Right. You know that whole neck shaking thing. I think is a result of 
wanting that sound when I started playing a telly. Yeah. Um, I missed it. And it's all, I mean, in a way, I mean, now I just like the sound, but it also kind of hides tuning stuff. You know, I mean, if you're playing a D chord or some chord that never sounds in tune. You know? Right, or whenever you have thirds. Yeah. yeah, is that it? I mean, just sometimes D is like, what's up with D, you know? But if you do this, it sounds nice, you know? So I yeah. think it was in part those both things. But that's how I use the vibrato bar, kind of just to shimmy. Well, and, the, and then that's interesting that, uh, you know, the, the fact that, you know, from playing the Strat and having a tremolo bar, you started, you know, kind of shaking the neck. And I've always wondered, you know, where that technique kind of, you know, came from, because it, it, it seemed like it was, uh, I don't you know, there were, you know, it, it seemed like there were some of the New York players, you know, kind of started, you know, doing like Bill Frizzell and others, you know, were kind of, you know, and yourself were kind of maybe some early proponents of that. And it became more and more known, you know, during the internet age, and you, you started seeing more and more players that started doing the whole you know, shake in the neck thing. So that's an interesting observation I've never thought about, but I can't think of anyone pre, you know, I'll just shoot from the hip like 75 who ever did that. Yeah. I mean, and there's some guys, I mean, can you, I, I, there's some guys that like did everything. They got every sound possible out of a guitar, but I don't recall anybody, you know, yeah. doing that thing. You know, so, there's, yeah. there's times where guys would use it as, as an effect, like they would just shake the neck, yeah, yeah. You know, for, but not for using it as, as a, a subtle kind of vibrato, like, yeah, but it's a, it's a, it's a neat sound and, and, you know, guys that really control it by, you know, the way they hold the guitar and instead of having it being exaggerated when they, uh, you know, where they're almost like doing some type of body English thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Maybe too, you know, now that I think about it, I mean, I hope we're not beating a dead horse here, but it could be a chorus, like having chorus than not having chorus. Cause it is a chorusing sound. Yeah. I used to have one. Of, I had the first chorus, I think, was made those rolling metal boxes. Yeah, the CD one. They, yeah, they had a stereo. Yeah. I think I sold it, um, which I regret just so I could look at it again. But um, right now, but uh, yeah, maybe it's that too. I don't know. You know, like yeah. between those two things, choruses, because uh, it does sound like chorusing. And I used to use chorus all the time and a bunch of effects and everything. Uh, and sometimes I still miss, you know, having like a whole note. Um, but that said, you know, it's nice to have an intimate relationship with your right hand and the strings. And sometimes with, uh, distortion or whatever, I feel a little removed from that. Yeah. There's, yeah, I was, I was going to ask you how, you know, how did you get into more of the minimalist approach as far as, well, I mean, basically you, you plug straight into the amp most of the time. I mean, when, how many times do you actually use an effect? I mean, or, I mean, an, a, a pedal effect or something like that. I mean, I would say, well, fairly not, rarely. Yeah, rarely. I always use this uh, jam. Uh, I think it's pronounced Wahoko uh, Wawa. Um, okay. I've been using that for about two years. But I almost use it as a tone control. Right. Um, you know, if I click it on and come all the way up, I get kind of woman tone. Mm -hmm. You know, the Clapton thing. Yeah. And uh, sorry. 
And um, so I've been kind of doing that. It was, I, I kind of wanted a, like really a third sound um, because I feel like, I mean, you know, I get like maybe two or three basic sounds, uh, you know, uh, from the telly. And I started, I, I kind of wanted just that little overdrive. And personally, I kind of like um, the, uh, you know, the woman tone approach where it's like, you know, kind of mclaughlin or something. Yes. Um, yeah. And who's, you know, one of my heroes. And uh, so I, I, I've been, I've been using that. Sorry, my getting messages. Um, the past couple of years, but I used to use everything. I mean, I used to have a bunch of boss effects and all that. And, um, I had this digital metalizer, a boss digital metalizer in stereo going out to a Fender twin. And one of those Fender amps with the red knobs that it kind of went out too far. Yeah. Yeah. A 12 inch of that. And I like those amps. Um, I mean, I kind of think they're underrated in a way. I mean, I wouldn't make it my primary amp, but I think they're, they're good. I, I, I never see them. But, I, you know, I play in stereo and all that. And I just started, like, weaning myself off it, you know, uh, one by one. I remember playing with a Vibrolux, which I ended up playing for years in the 10-gallon cats and all that stuff. Um, and it just sounded puny to me, you know. And now if I play through a Vibrolux, I'm like, wow, this is great. I have a lot of headroom and I could control the dynamics of the band by telegraphing a dynamic change. You know, headroom for me represents that, uh, that aspect of playing. And a, a I could play a lighter touch if I have more headroom. Sometimes I find myself downstroking to project. Right. Uh, you know, if we get really loud and uh, with the Vibrolux or even a Deluxe, it's still like, oh yeah, you know, I got, I have headroom. Right. So you haven't, you haven't hit the, 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 the ceiling on the amp, which, you know, right. which, you know, which is a neat sound, but still it's, it's, it's difficult when you're, when you're playing and you know, you've hit that ceiling and you've got no place to go. So. Yeah, that happens. Okay. You know, it'll happen as often as one might think. And generally I might. Um, and when I mic, it's great. Uh, I usually uh, don't, I mean, for years now, um, I kind of have a no monitor, like let's have no monitors and start with no monitors. Right. And I think it's the best way to, you know, I mean, obviously we're not like doing three part harmonies, you know, it's like generally I'm in an instrumental band, but even when I played with Nora or Martha Wainwright, I'd always go from, I want nothing. And if I could like walk over two feet and hear that better, you know, that, because as soon as something comes from a monitor to me, it seems like it's, it's not, it, it, I have less of a chance of playing music. Yeah. And it does like really color my sound. Um, so anyway, I kind of went uh, up and yeah, I'm, I might sound like a horrible person, but I, I think one of the worst things is when you start getting drums in the monitor. Yeah. Just, that starts getting, you know, crazy. It's like, you're too loud. It's like, you know, move, move closer together, figure out some way to be able to hear each other without having to throw so much stuff in the monitors. And then of course you have, you know, in-ear monitors, which completely take away any type of spatial, you know, nature, because when you move around, you don't, <laughs> it doesn't get louder <laughs> when you get closer to the drums or 
Yeah, I, I only had to do that once. I mean, maybe uh, somebody who's got more those kind of experiences can, you know, have more to say, but I didn't like it. Um, and a couple of times, like mistakes happened, like they, you know, some shriek happened. Right. And I mean, it's, you know, it, I mean, I'm no prima donna, but it was like, hey, I don't want to go deaf. Right. And, um, but yeah, um, and the drum thing, I mean, that's another, uh, even they mix the drums these days, um, you know, too high. I think they're too influenced by modern mixes where I think the drums are too high. I mean, the music I really love, and I mean, there's not to narrow it down to any one thing, but is, you know, 60s Buck Owens, you know, 60s Merle Haggard, Johnny Paycheck on Little Darlin', you know, it's country music with steel guitar. I mean, on Together Again, I know it's grooving like crazy, and I think and part of it is the acoustic guitar, but, you know, you don't hear, do, do, cack, you know, I mean, it's, it's yes. ludicrous to me. Yeah. Like, and I hear this, and it, it, it seems... I don't know. I mean, I don't know what came first. It's like it's influenced by uh, dance music um, from the early 80s or something, and they keep that. I don't know. I, I, but well, I don't like it. Yeah, all, I think you know, part of it has to do with you, know, you had you know, so many drummers that were learning jazz. You know that were they, they were coming up 40s 50s you know 60s they were being taught by more people that were influenced by by jazz and people that were playing smaller drum kits i mean they would be called cocktail kits at this point they were small yeah. they were playing with brushes and you had you know when you listen to you know buck owens and it's like you know or or you know, most of the you know country albums from the 60s or you know you you still had guys that weren't they weren't trying to slay the drums and they weren't, you know, competing against, you know, 100 watt stacks. And so yeah, you end up with very different music when the you have a smaller drum drum kit and and not trying to take over. So, yeah, it's funny. I, the other day, Green Onions came on. Yeah. I mean, which is, you know, I like never get sick of that song. I mean, it's I've heard it 10,000 times and I'll stop dead in my tracks. And like the drummer is really what, what's his name? Al Jackson. Al Jackson Jr. Yeah. Yes. Is not is not really whacking the drums, but if you see a group play Green Onions, it's you know, it's it's yes. kind of sounds like, you know, Green Onions meets Black Sabbath or something, you know. Yes. And I think that's the beauty of like Al Green and that whole era, you know, is is it's understated. Um, and you hear the story, you hear the vocals, and you hear everything really clearly, and it's grooving. Right. So, yeah, <laughs> not to sound like you know, the, yeah. you know the the old guys. But yeah, there's there's this you know aspect of of being able to hear their space. You can hear the different instruments. It's like I you know you mentioned Green Onions. I love listening to you know Burger T and the MGs. That's something I listen to on a weekly basis because. It's like you hear the organ or piano, you hear the bass, you hear the drums, and you hear the guitar. And another realization is from the more I listen to that, the more I realize that Al Jackson, the drummer, was the most important member of that band. And it was, again, I, I maybe heresy to be ranking them, but 
you know, of course, you know, when you're a kid, it's, oh, Steve Cropper, uh-huh. like he's the great, and then, then it's like, oh, that duck done. I mean, he's doing, it. and then it's like, no, the great organ parts. But then it's like, to me, the, the longer I listen to him, the more I think that Al Jackson was the one and that, you know, of course, after he passed away and they tried to do other things, I mean, you, you can't ever go back to paradise. You can't ever, you know, you can't <laughs> yeah. go home. So there's this aspect, but it's kind of like, it's hard for me not to think, well, I think it's the, you know, Al Jackson Jr. that, uh, you know, kind of made a big difference in his, you know, in his drumming. And it's obvious the later drummers that they had in Booker T and the MGs after Al, you know, passed away, they all tended to be rock or fusion drummers. And they were great, but they didn't have the field that Al Jackson Jr. had. So, all right, I'm going to get yeah. off my soapbox. So, okay, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you and I agree. And, you know, I don't think it's totally crabby old guy stuff. I hope not anyway. Yeah. So, so you, you, so, but what was it specifically that got you off of using pedals and going straight into the amp? Was it more of the, 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 because there is a level of when you don't have any pedals and buffers and anything in between your guitar and amp, there is a more tactical, tactile uh, differentiation as you move where your hand is picking on a string. It seems like you lose some of that the more stuff you go through. Was it that? Yeah, or? I mean, it kind of coincided with me getting a telly um, and wanting to fully commit to uh, playing country guitar. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I also, I mean, I think I told this story before, but I went to this store on Haight Street, and there was this, like, really strange guy owned it. Like, I mean, he was the kind of guy you'd go in, and he'd kind of, like, act like you didn't, you know, like you were, like you shouldn't be there. It's the kind of guy, which I kind of like, you yeah. know. He was like a weirdo, like, kind of give you a dirty look, but not like a record store snob or something like that. Like, this guy was... I liked him, but anyway, I got a telly and I was like, I like this one telly. And he, he kind of interviewed me. He was like, so are you going to, is this going to be your primary guitar? And I was like, yeah, I think so. And, you know, I was like, I hope that's the right answer. This guy might not <laughs> sell it to me, but he asked me, he goes, and he, he was, he was like the guy in the beginning of the movie Moby Dick who, the crazy guy who talks to uh, Richard Basehart, like looks in his eyes and predicts their future. Anyway, his like, eyes are really intense. And he goes, do you use effects? And I said, well, you know, sometimes I use a, a Chandler tube screamer. He goes, do not do that. It, it, you cannot connect with the audience and they know it. And I was like, okay. Like, <laughs> So anyway, I bought the guitar, but it, it kind of, I don't know. I mean, I sound really overly impressionable, but I kind of thought, I think I know what he means a little bit. And, and the other thing that I really enjoyed, I mean, it was hard, but I enjoyed it. And I see it to this day is the first three songs, guys are bending over, yes. dialing in their sound. And I tell you, you know, the middle of the first song, it's kind of like, okay, this is, this is the hand I've been dealt. You know, maybe if I step over here, okay, that's better. Um, I, I start playing music faster. And I'm yes. not, you know, I played with Nels Klein and, you know, the guy brings two feet of effects and he's brilliant and 
great, you know, and he immediately starts playing music. So I'm not insinuating that, you know, that's impossible. But for me, like that ended too. And I kind of like that. Um, and I also enjoyed, I think that was the last thing I used. I had like a rack, uh, a Chandler tube screamer, or tube driver. Tube little, driver. Yeah. And um, the band I was in at the time was like, hey, don't, you know, just plug into the amp. It'll sound better. And I did. And I, I agreed. So it was it was a slow process. But when I got the telly, I was like, yeah, I really want to sound like all the guys I'm listening to. And, you know, it was like not only Roy Buchanan, but Hank Garland, Joe Mathis, you know, Jimmy Bryant, for sure. Right. Um, and that is a clean sound, and I generally have a little dirt on things more than the guys I've just said. But, you know, it seemed like I actually got good enough to where um, it was uh, advantageous. Uh, you know, like I, I developed a touch. Like, I mean, it, it wasn't like everything was compressed. So um, this, you know... Uh, <laughs> you know, sounded cooler to me going straight into the amp instead of if it was compressed and everything would be more even. I mean, I don't know if that's a great example, but, you know, no. to make a point musically. No, absolutely. That's a great point because, you know, when you, when you compress, you know, a guitar, and especially when you play the low strings, that's where it becomes the most rubber bandy sounding and loses that kind of doinky quality that, yeah. you know, that a good vintage Telecaster <clears throat> pardon me, has, you know, on the bridge pickup. And it's like, when you lose that doinkiness, it's kind of like, ah, you know. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Start yeah. Instead of rubber, you know, yeah. I'd rather have the doinkiness than the rubber band sound. So, you know, the yeah. But, and yet compression is great. And uh, that was a hard give up too. I think I, the compression, I mean, if you're going to do harmonics, you know, you know, I mean, if, if you have compression, they do it really brings things out. Um, so, right. you know, but uh, that said, you gain your low notes, you gain more of a dynamic control. Uh, you lose harmonics that aren't loud or, or a sustainy sound that's, uh, you know, whatever this kind of thing like sounds good. You know, sounds good compressed. I mean, or I, I don't know if that's a good example, but you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't have to be loud, but it it's nice sometimes when things even out. And it does sound a little more like a steel guitar, which, you know, I know we both love. Yeah. So... How did you get into how did you get into country music? Because again, being you know you've been you know New York City, uh, you know San Francisco is like how did this? I mean, again, we, we you know some of us don't realize that you know of course country music you know had you know was there was a lot of country music in California and 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 things going on there. But what what got you into those players? Well, you know it was uh, I mean probably the first thing I heard. Uh, was Lonesome Fugitive off Roy Buchanan's, Roy Buchanan's first record. Right. And I think I was 12, you know, when I got that, or some 13, something like that. And, you know, I liked it. I mean, I liked the story. Um, 
and you know and then there was like almond brothers and stuff like that like i'm a i'm a kid i'm an, a kid in an italian suburbia in san francisco so it's not you know the country uh capitalism world right right I mean, it's more like montrose you know that kind of thing montrose you know you just leave the house and you'd hear montrose or you'd hear uh you know black sabbath paranoid and stuff like that right and uh I mean, what really changed for me, because I, I liked it, but, you know, I was in a bit of a void. I mean, it was really hard to find what was good. I had seen Hee Han, you know, was completely alienated by it. You know, I mean, I probably like it more now, but when you're, you know, a, a stoner hippie and you're 15 and you're listening to Wheels of Fire, you know, or whatever, and you see, you know, Hee Haw, it's kind of like, yeah, that's that's not me. But um, I think um, I was maybe 18 or 19 and I went to this record store and I was buying records and I saw Merle Haggard live at Muskogee. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I saw it and I was like, oh, yeah, this is that guy that hates hippies and like doesn't smoke marijuana. <laughs> and, and I thought and it was a buck. It was one dollar. And I was yeah. like, oh, yeah, it, it'll, I'll, I'll, you know, it'll be funny. And uh, I brought it home and I put it on and, you know, I don't know when, but I heard uh, if I had left it up to you is on that record. And mm -hmm. it's just a lovely song. Um, and I think it was something I was experiencing at the time. It's hard to remember, but and I tried to learn the solo at some point. I mean, this is over a couple of days and I kind of thought like, oh, yeah, I'll get this. Um, because, you know, I was young and dumb and I was amazed at like the muscle it took and it sounds, you know, it's just the melody and some slurs. And that was the beginning of it. Um, uh, and at the time, I think I had listened to, uh, this one Muddy Waters Chess Masters double album for like a year. I mean, it was all I listened to was Muddy Waters. And as, you know, I still love Muddy Waters and, you know, all that, all the blues stuff. I mean, because that's kind of what I was listening to prior to this. But what really made it change for me, aside from the fact I love steel guitar and I loved the guitar work, was that I really understood the lyrics. You know, it wasn't about mojo or something like in a language I didn't speak or in an era that I didn't know, even though I, I dig it, you know, I, I still do. But the lyrics really, like they, I completely understood them. They were simple. They said exactly what they meant. Uh, and I still love it for that. I mean, together again, you know, I mean, there's no imagery there. You know, I get it. And so coincidentally, and I feel like I'm talking too much, but coincidentally, my cousin had a had a country band, kind of more a wedding band. And uh, he played accordion, Lou Furpo. And uh, they're, they, they, but they were like a wedding band who started as the country band, but started doing weddings. So they do like the anniversary waltz and stuff like that in the first set. And then by the, you know, second set, it would be um, some Hank Williams and stuff like that. 
And I was young, you know, I mean, I think I was 20, maybe 19 or 20. And um, I, uh, you know, Lou asked me if I wanted to be in the band. I did a gig with them. They were super nice and they were actually really good. Um, and that really was got my foot in the door. And we played Elks clubs all the time. We were the house band at this one Elks club, Eagles Halls, um, where you can really learn your craft, you know? I mean, it's one thing now, I mean, when I, sometimes I get students from new school or whatever, and these guys are great, you know? I mean, they're the same age I was back then when I was just, you know, kind of, you know, just in a void. And these guys are really informed, but they don't have those kind of gigs uh, right. where, I mean, I was playing at least three times a week, maybe four. And, you know, I can't say like I, I improved in, you know, an incredible amount. I think more so by studying records really made me improve, but it was a great way to learn. And more and more, I was humbled by the music. Uh, it, it was kind of, I kind of thought it would be easy, you know, because I had heard the Allman Brothers and Blue Sky and stuff like that. And it was kind of like pentatonic scale. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'll just do that on this. But the more I played, and I did, now and then they'd have somebody really good in the band. And this one piano player they had for one gig, um, and we did, I forget what song we did, but it was, I remember, it's weird. I remember it was in G and it went to C and then D7. Um, but I was playing and I heard, I thought, wow, that's really good. What's he doing? And basically he was going like G major, G7 with an F natural, C. And while he was soloing, and that was a real revelation to me. Um, and I thought, wow, that's really nice. And, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but, you know, it adheres to the principles of Bach. We're playing a G7, which is like a uh, secondary dominant of the four chord. And, and that kind of opened up some stuff, too. And I started to understand what Roy Nichols was actually doing, where I kind of needed that revelation because... I was, uh, when I'd learn, I'd go, well, F sharp works the first time, but now it's F. Is it if you're ascending or descending? Like, I really didn't know. So that was a big part of it. And, you know, uh, I've loved it ever since. Yeah, that, that, uh, that Haggard record is, uh, is, is fantastic. And it's, it's really interesting hearing Roy's version of like Working Man Blues versus you know, Burton's, you know, ori original, just to hear the difference in there, you know, even though he's kind of, you know, miming the, you know, the, the solo for Burton, but just his, his tone and attack and everything is, is so different. And so himself, I mean, he, he kind of owns it. So. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a great, it's a great record. Um, I love the rap to, you know, like Merle's going, are there any truck drivers out there? And, uh, the mayor gives him the key to the city. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a great record. Uh, it was, I was really lucky to find it, you know, and I bought it as a joke. Um, yeah. You but know, it, like uh, Sean Hannity has a record. Yeah. Something, you know, for black. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? I get it. I get it. You know, it's, it's funny, you know, hee haw, you know, even, even the performers on hee haw, I mean, it was like you had, 
all these, you know, kind of corn pone comedians and you had, you know, Buck and Roy and, and, and Buck has even said, you know, in hindsight that it destroyed his, you know, his recording career, you know, being on the show, even though he made a lot of money just to, because even in Nashville, that was seen as, as being very, you know, over the top, uh, you know, kind of silly, you know, kind of a caricature of country life, but people seem to love it. At least a you know a certain audience did, but it's fun to watch those shows and see the old players and their the gear and everything. So I'd always been curious to revisit it, um, at, you know, now and see if like oh wow Jerry Reed's on there or something like that. I was oblivious to, but I just remember it as being, you know, like ugh, you know just yeah. Girls with the tied tops and guys right. like with a piece of wheat, you know. I yeah. mean, the music, I, I really don't even remember the music, to be honest. My dad used to watch it, I think, probably for the girls, <laughs> with all due respect. Well, they, they did have, you know, they did have good, you know, musical guests. And there were times where things were pre-recorded. But, uh, you know, you had, you know, some of the, you know, top, you know, a lot of the top players in, you know, Nashville were part of the staff band. You had, you know, Charlie McCoy and, and uh, golly, Honeyfingers. Uh, oh, golly. What? Buddy Charlton? No, the, uh, the, the guitarist. Buddy Leon, Charlton. Leon, yeah, Leon Rhodes. Rhodes. Yeah, you had Leon Rhodes playing guitar and you had. I didn't you know, know that. that. Yeah. So there, there's this whole era, you know, you know, there's different eras of the show, but especially like in the in the in the part of the '70s and '80s, Leon Rhodes was the guitarist, and uh, in the staff band, and and Charlie McCoy led it, and and they had this whole era where they had the the million dollar band where it was Chet Atkins and Johnny Gimble and and uh, you know Boots Randolph, and they would do an instrumental you know, on, on every show. And so, yeah, there were, there were different eras of the show, but yeah, there were, there were times where, were, and, but they always had the corn pone, you know, humor going on that was so over the top. It was, you know, even, even for a Southerner, it was, it was kind of like, wow. It's just, yeah, I really. mean, yeah, I, I, like I said, uh, you know, at the time, I mean, you know, I, I would go see my great grandmother and she didn't speak English. You know, she wow. only spoke Italian. So yeah. it, was, it was a bit of a culture shock. I mean, but that said, you know, after that initial, you know, that thing with my cousin, there was a great country scene there. There was a, a bar in San Jose called the Saddle Rack. Okay. And um, I think a couple of guys, I can't remember his name, darn it, um, a guitarist that was uh, like a house guitarist there ended up moving to Nashville. Big Reggie Young fan. Bill Hullett. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, Bill Hullett used to play there. I never saw Bill Hullett, but I know that. And his kind of guys played there. But I was lucky enough to meet uh, Joe Goldmark and Bobby Black and this guy named right. Doc West. Um I don't think anybody's heard of him. He was, he was a, you know, kind of a loner, but a great guitarist. And uh, yeah, I really learned a lot playing with him. Again, it was like seeing what it was like, oh, that's chicken picking. Like I tried doing it, but now I'm seeing somebody do it. Right. And, and he's doing it better than me. Um, so that kind of raised the notch a little bit with Joe. Um, Doc West, you know, I, I was trying to find the records was like I was obsessed with it. I used to go to this swap meet 
record swap meet in Emeryville, which was across the bridge. And I think it was at 6 a.m. Sunday morning it started. And I used to like get there at like 5.30. I literally would buy uh, LPs out of people's trunks, trunk. <laughs> and um, uh, Doc had told me, I said, you know, where can I get some steel guitar records? And he said, well, there's this thing called the Steel Guitar Record Club, if you could find those. And he goes, Joe Goldmark will know. And I go, who's Joe Goldmark? And he said, oh, he, he runs uh, Escape from New York Pizza. So I went there. I think I called him and he said, I'll make you a cassette. I said, fine. So I went there. He wasn't there. And uh, I, but the cassette was there. And this cassette changed my life. I mean, it, it, you know, uh, Joe has a, an amazing record collection and he knows all the history and everything. He'd be a great interview. Literally wrote a book about uh, every record that has steel guitar he catalogs. But um, there was, you know, it was like finding the Dead Sea Scrolls or something. So I just wore this cassette out and then I started trying to buy the records or people affiliated with those records. And, you know, I guess now I'm like 30 or something. So it was a long, slow road. So what, uh, if you had to list a, a couple of those records that really, you know, kind of floored you the most, that, you know, really changed you the most, which, which ones would they be? Well, that's a really tough one. Um, certainly, uh, Live at Muskogee, probably Jimmy Bryant, Speedy West, uh, Two Guitars Country Style. Um, also the, you know, the Stratosphere Boogie one. Uh, I think that's a Jimmy Bryant record. So the two, there's Speedy West, Jimmy Bryant, Steel Guitar. Definitely that with This Ain't the Blues open right. track one, I think. Then the one that Jimmy has that Jimmy Bryant put out with Billy Strange on the cover. Oh, yeah, Country Cabin Jazz. Country Cabin Jazz. So those yeah. definitely. And then, like, on the not-so-obvious, I mean, obvious between nerds, yeah. um, you know, this this Billy Bird record called I Love a Guitar, um, there's a girl on the cover, you know, holding a guitar, and it's called I Love a Guitar. It has two different covers. Um the other one just has, I think, a generic cowboy playing guitar. But anyway, that record, I learned everything on it. And, and, and uh, again, it was, it really taught me how to play a melody. And because that's all Billy Bird did, you know. And, uh, you know, but the kind of Django-isms, as I would describe them as. I mean, like real guitar. Yeah. You know, like you can pick up an acoustic and you can do these little slides and slurs. And I really studied that record a lot, too. And uh, Hank Garland's on rhythm guitar on that record, by the way. Um, I mean, to some people, it might sound Muzaki. Uh, so, you know, if anybody's going to run out there and I don't know how much the record is, it, it, it I mean, it's kind of Muzaki, but like I loved it and I learned everything on it. And it was actually a little easier to learn that than, you know, the, the solo to Stratosphere Boogie or whatever. So it was kind of doable. Yeah. And I learned those, you know, do, 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 you know, all the Billy Bird-isms that yes. kind of make <laughs> you, you legitimate. And, <laughs> Where you kind of and, cl climbing, up, climbing up, you know, playing the, uh, 
you know, the second to the third and then hitting the tonic up, up on the high E string. Yeah. Those kind of things. Those really still sound beautiful to me. And, and, and some things I learned, like I wanted to get a bunch of endings. So if I had a pickup gig, I mean, sometimes it's like the guy who plays like the obvious ending is like, Oh man, like, thank you. You know, like, and there was a lot of them in there. Right. And so people um, all, all end on the same note. Yeah, yeah, when you do, or you know, sometimes that saves the day. Yeah, and to hit on what you were saying earlier, it's uh, it's surprisingly hard to play simple melodies well on the guitar and with kind of authority and conviction. And that's you know, it's so to just play a simple melody on the guitar, you know, sometimes it can be really hard to do that in a in a compelling way. And uh, by doing it, you kind of learn that better. So, I mean, I totally agree. And I think a, a lot of guitarists, like myself, you know, in the beginning, like I could play pentatonic and, you know, do Allman Brothers, but to play the melody was tricky. And everyone knows if you're going to miss the note. But I've done, I just do that more and more and more, especially if I do a session. Um, I mean, I really pay attention to the melody of the song. And a lot of times I, for my solo, unless they want something that's a total departure from that, like, oh, it's, it's time for the solo, you know, but right. I'll just play the melody and, you know, and change it up a little bit. And usually like the songwriter loves it. You know, and, and I like it too. Uh, so the melody is is very underrated and, and Billy Bird is a great source of, of, oh, how do you play a melody? Maybe less so, but another example is probably Willie Nelson. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, certainly. You know, he plays the melody and, uh, you know, it's it does the job. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the albums that, that I can listen to over and over again, or is, you know, Willie Nelson's Stardust, you know, it's like, and it's just, it's these, you know, that was the first, one of the first album, you know, kind of concept albums, revisiting the American songbook and, and Willie's just playing straight melodies. You know, it's like, he's never doing anything crazy. He's play, playing the melody I mean, that's on his gut string. Home run. Like I thought you were going to say redheaded stranger and I wouldn't have been snooty about it. I mean, yeah. it's a great record. My favorite Willie Nelson record is uh, over the rainbow, which yeah. is right around that, that era that you named with stardust. Right. And it's a great record. And, and it's, it's one of the ways I learned standards um, too, because, you know, again, growing up in a void of like Montrose and deep purple or whatever, right. Um, you know, like standards, I knew I was supposed to learn them, but it just, they sounded like, you know, what's this? Like, it's autumn in New York, you know, it just sounded like, <laughs> what is this, Frank Zappa? You know, it just it made no sense. And that record really helped me identify in the same way when I mentioned the Merle Haggard record, like these are songs I can really relate to that speak to me very clearly. And Billie Holiday did that to me too. I mean, I really went into Billie Holiday and heard those standards that, you know, some people deem as like an exercise from jazz school, but you know, you hear what they're really about. And I always do that. If I learn a tune, 
I always make sure I know the lyrics. I try and, uh, like an actor, like what's my motivation, you know? Right. Um, I always know the lyrics or I'll look at the, find the history of the tune. I mean, maybe I'm slow, but you know, that's really important to me. And, but anyway, yeah, I love the, I love both those Willie Nelson records. Yeah. There, there's so much to, uh, yeah, you know, the, the best session guys, you know, they, they really pay attention to the, uh, you know, to the lyrics. They really pay attention to, you know, the emotion that's trying to be translated. And, and yeah, that's, that's what good, good players do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I kind of had to learn some things, you know, I mean, <clears throat> there's, there's some people that they're just the nicest guy in the world, you know, like Bobby Black, pedal steel player, you know. Um, but I learned that like, uh, when I do a session, I always go, I mean, it sounds a little harsh, but in New York, it flies like I'll go in 10 words or less. What is this song about? Like, yeah. um, because I don't, I don't want to hear like the guy's life story. And really what I'm looking for is one or two words like um, yearning, yeah. um, jealousy, you know, and if I hear that, I'll go, OK, OK, I, I, I think I know how to, you know, I'll give you my version of jealousy or yearning or love or abandonment or whatever. Um, that's why I say the 10 words or less. It sounds a little terse, but like I said, in New York, you kind of get away with it because people are edited here and no one's ever been offended, you know, yeah. but and that's what I do. Yeah. It's always direct. Excuse me they're, they're, for interrupting, but they're, they're happy. I'm interested. Yes. You know, and, and they should be. <laughs> that you're actually paying attention instead of just saying you know th these are some hot licks that i've worked up and, and you're gonna love it <laughs> yeah yeah can you change the key um yeah because <laughs> i i have this open string lick and then i hit yeah. a harmonic i bend it behind the nut and i do this drop <laughs> on the on the tuning on the tuning peg and it, it it's it'll it'll kill you it'll kill you so believe me i mean you know that happens a lot like and i try i don't say anything I, there's i've worked with a few people that still sit on my shoulder like bobby black who's just the sweetest guy like and he's great like he, yeah. you know oomph when he plays but you know he'd never go do we have to do it at a flat i had this whole thing worked out in g you know it's like Sometimes it's like, okay, flat it is. And yeah. let's see what we got. Like, and, and be nice, just be nice. So, <laughs> yeah. but what would you rather play a country song in G or e, A flat? You know, it's, it's, it's tricky. In G. Yeah. <laughs> G, me too. I had a yeah. feeling you'd say G. Yeah. <laughs>
So you mentioned Nora Jones earlier, and I was just, you know, curious because, of course, I, you know, had the the both of the Little Willies, you know, records, and uh, I felt like, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it felt like that you were brought in to kind of legitimize the uh, the the countryside project of these guys. Well, you know, and not really. Um, I mean, I. I met the backstory is, and I feel like I, I, I hope I'm not boring you and no. whoever's going to watch this, but um, when I was in San Francisco, I played uh, with Lee Alexander, the bassist producer right. who was in the, the Nora Jones first record and there, thereof. Yeah. Um, and we used to do this terrible gig. It was at this place called, I mean, I hate to do that. I sound cynical, but. It made me really like him because we played at this place called Infusion and it was kind of in the heyday of the uh, dot com thing. And it was like all these uh, flavors of vodka. And we had to play in this stage, like in the upper corner. It was like, you know, like a go-go girl in a cage or something. But it was the hardest load in of any gig I've ever done in my life. And Lee used to bring an upright bass and he never complained. And I didn't do the gig a lot, but when I did it, it would just be me and him. And Lee was great. I mean, he was a really good bass player, but like I kind of admired him. You know, he'd be bringing that bass and you couldn't fit through this stairwell. It's hard to explain, but it was just crazy small. Anyway, he moved to New York uh, and kind of kept in touch. And I heard he met this girl named Nora. And I was like, oh, great. Lee moved to New York and... Uh, and met a, a nice girl. And uh, then he, he emailed me, said, hey, we're gonna be in San Francisco. Me and Nora, you wanna do a gig? And I go, yeah, let's do some country. So we worked up about 12 tunes. And I got uh, Bobby, I think Bobby Black was on Pedal Steel um, in that group and uh, Chris Key and Andrew Borger, who she ended up using as her drummer. Anyway, we did these gigs and it was like, Jim Campolongo with Nora Jones, you know, and uh, and so we did that, and it was really fun. And when they were, when he their first record hadn't come out yet, but when they came out, and I thought she was fantastic. Like yeah. I, when I met her, I was like, I think she was twenty. She was absolutely talented. I mean, and beautiful, cool. You know, I mean, she, you know, I just was felt like, God, can I invest in you? You know, but nothing had happened. Nothing. She was, you know, Lee Alexander's girlfriend who I ended up meeting and would totally admire. So anyway, then I moved to New York and this, I'll make this short, even though it's long already. Um, it, I was on sleeping on couches, uh, and they had a room open up, Leonora, in this apartment. Okay, it was maybe 19 years ago. And they said, hey, you want this room? We got to go out on tour because we're putting out this record. It's on Blue Note. And it was back in the day. I mean, it was exciting, but it was when there was a record industry. So I kind of knew people who had records coming out on major labels. But, you know, I, and... Uh, so anyway, I got here and 
they were about to go out on tour and they, and, and I remember Lee took me for like a 10 minute tour. We walked outside. He goes, Hey, he goes, Jim, don't go left. And I go, okay. And, uh, and then we took a walk and he said, yeah, there was a dry cleaner or whatever, but I really, I thought what's left, you know, and they went out and maybe five months later, I was sitting in this apartment on their little TV watching Nora get five Grammys. Yeah. It was incredible. It was um, fast. It was fast and, and they got it right, in my opinion. Like, I mean, I don't know a bunch of, you know, major Grammy winners, but I'm telling you, she's really a great, great artist. Um, and anyway, so it was a, a mob scene we were this apartment was on the cover of the new york post and it said grammy queen's new uh, humble digs and there was like a news crew of vans and everything outside and uh they were trying to get in the apartment and you know all this stuff and i started putting signs in the window like of my friends like scottamandola.com you know he's a jazz drummer in san francisco and you know, I'd see the whole news people writing it down and everything. But um, anyway, when they got back from tour, we ended up doing the Little Willies. And uh, so I was always a part of it. And in the beginning, I was almost more or less the band leader. Right. Um, and I, I mean, in the perfect world, I mean, I would have wanted a pedal steel player, <laughs> to be honest. But, uh, you know, I mean, she... I think she's pretty legit. I mean, it certainly wasn't Nashville country or anything. And even my own playing, I'm surprised you say that, um, Zach, because I mean, I mean, I don't listen to it much, but when I, I, I've heard it on the radio or when it comes up, I'm like, man, this is really crazy. That is some crazy guitar playing. And I remember Lee and everybody was really supportive. Like I do a solo and think, Oh man, I'm in trouble. Yeah. But, and Nora would be like, all right, Jim, you know, so it was really nice camaraderie and they were super supportive. Um, I mean, you, you know, I, I mean, I have to go through and revisit it. It was recorded super fast. I mean, some of the solos I hear and I'm like, Oh, I could have done so much better, but um, it was done really fast. And I learned a lot. Um, Nora has a real jazz mentality. Uh, so, you know, it was like three takes, man, tops. Like, and sometimes there'd be a key change in that take. And what I learned from her was if she did a couple of takes, she'd do it different. Like, I mean, each take would be a, diff a little different feel or a different this, or hey, can we put it up uh, to see or whatever. And I hadn't worked that way. I, I would, you know, I'd be like, hey, can we do the same intro and the same song and I'll hone in everything. But it wasn't like that. It was like, let's make music that's right now. And of course, I cringe at some of my solos because, you know, it might have been the first time in that key. Uh, but it, that said, it's real. And there, there, there's an energy and there's, uh, you know, because they, they kind of gave you the freedom. There's an adventuresome to your solos and stuff on that, uh, on, uh, on those records. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't generic. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> not, not at all. 
I mean, if I, you know, I don't know if it was good, but it was engineering. <laughs> no, it was good. So, so you've, you know, continue, you know, you've, you've made so many great, you know, solo records. You've got this, you know, duo record that you've done now. You've done more avant-garde things. You've done more, uh, you know, but this, the the new album with uh, with Luca is is such a nice uh, you know pairing and it's so it's so nice to just hear two guitars being being played well was that was that a fun uh, album to to put down yeah I mean it was you know I I I mean I don't throw the L word around uh, but I love Luca you know he's like a good friend we talk on the phone once a week you know he's totally I his wife Becca is really really sweet and I think she's a scientist or something and you know, she's like super smart um, so yeah it was fun to be with Luca but I mean you know my records I kind of consciously plan them um, where I did uh, the, the Jim Campolongo and Honeyfingers last night this morning just going back a few years right is, is kind of a produced sounding record, even though much of it was live. But we had a Django kind of guy, uh, style guitar with Roy Williams, Luca Benedetti playing telly, me on telly, and Johnny Lamb on uh, pedal steel. So it was a big sounding record with parts and unity. And then the follow-up record is us like it sounds like a post you know apocalyptic uh, trio you know um which really captured what that band did and does playing weekly for two three four years in new york city so after that you know i thought i've been you know thinking about you know i, I do me and uh, luca actually got together and a couple of guys couldn't make the gig. And so we, we said, well, we have to play. I think it was snowing or something. And I was like, okay, well, let's do it. You know, we can do yeah. it. And about five songs into it, it clicked. Like I realized, and you said that I play sparsely, you know, at the beginning of the interview. I mean, I, I noticed the more comfortable I am, the less I play. And right. that's what we started doing. Like instead of going, you know, like chit 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 chit, it was unamplified. But, um, and you know, I saw the potential there. But it's like one of the reasons I try and mix it up. I mean, just for my own interest, is it's kind of like, well, how many Jim Campolongo records can somebody buy? I mean, I, I mean, how many Danny Gatton records can you buy? You know, right. and. I mean, and I mean that because Danny Gatton's great, right? I mean, right. he's the end all, you know, telly guy. Um, but I don't have all his records, you know, and I think it's part of like what I want to do is present something that's a side of me. But this two guitars, I was really nervous about. Um, we are all aware of Lenny Bro and Chet Atkins and, you know, the list is that West Montgomery, you know, yes. uh, the, the more we learn, the more humbling it is. I mean, to know like how great and gifted some players are, Le you know, Leon Rhodes, you know, 
Billy Bird, you know, even though he was, you know, not playing Fly to the Bumblebees, he was a great artist. So I, I honestly thought, geez, you know, if I do a solo record or a duet record, will I be showing how mediocre I really am, you know, yeah. um, compared to those guys and like compared to Lenny Bro or something like that, like, do, do I have the facility and the imagination and the artistry to make a, a record that competes or can sit with, uh, you know, Herb Ellis and Joe Pass or something like that. And I thought, I thought, well, no, because I don't play that way. But when I, about that fourth or fifth song, I realized, oh, we're doing something here that's legitimate. And it isn't Lenny Bro, but I think it's, it's good. And, uh, and that's why I put out two guitars. And, I, you know, I am proud of it. That's, no, actually, I'm getting a di different test pressing today. But about a month ago, I got the test pressing for it. And I hadn't listened to it since we mixed it, you know, in a big hurry. And, uh, and you know, I put on the test pressing and you have to kind of review that there's no skips and everything. We actually rejected it. First time it's ever happened. Um, but I put it on, it sounded good. And I was like, wow, this is a really good record. And, uh, you know, sometimes you get lucky, you know. Yeah. It's, I almost think it's like a gift from god like to make a record and i'm not saying it's sergeant peppers or you know whatever a masterpiece but there's always something you know like on live at rockwood there was one song i really wanted on there i thought this song it was in a sentimental mood done live and i really played it well and i thought yeah it'll really round this record off um but the drum mics were off um and so it was like shoot you know and i'm not saying it now it's awful but it wasn't exactly the record i could make and we're all under the gun you know like you gotta do it fast and you kind of have to get lucky too um and on two guitars i feel like we got lucky i'm real proud of it when i listened to the test pressing i was uh really met the record and thought you know well this is kind of a dark record um or a moody record and I had no idea, you know, I mean, because some of the tunes, you know, I feel like I'm hanging on the end of a roller coaster. Um, but upon listening to it, they're all melodic and it feels relaxed. And I was really happy with that. You know, um, there's a song, Denise, that I really wanted it to, to be good. And, and it really came out in, in part because Luca's accompaniment that's so lovely but anyway that's kind of the story of all my records and yeah it's funny zach i i sent you this band camp link and i said hey you can check my stuff out here and you know you don't have to buy like you know 14 records so you can ask me a couple of questions you know um but that said i did this during the pandemic i i was like you know i want to get off spotify and uh so and I've been trying to find stuff to do, as all of us. Um, so I thought, okay, I'm going to get all my records and put them on Spotify. And man, it was it took about a week, you know, because yeah, I had to physically write out all the liner notes. A lot of the stuff was lost. 
Sometimes I had to find the artwork and blah, 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 blah. But I ended up listening to all my records. And, uh, you know, I was pretty happy with them. Uh, you know, they've aged well, and it inspired me to put them out on vinyl. So I'm going to do the first 10-gallon cat record, which still sounds really good. You Absolutely. Know? Uh, I was really... I mean, I don't allow myself to feel like super proud, you know, of my work or whatever. Because, as you know, I mean, it's 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 you have to kind of go down the middle when you're a musician. You know, I remember, uh, for example, and I don't, you know, when's this guy going to stop talking? But um, I got invited to go play with uh, Pearl Jam. Okay, this was like, I don't know what year it was. I was given a lesson and some guy like phones and he's like, hey, this is Stone Gossard. And I was like, sounds like a superhero to me. <laughs> and he's like, hey, want to come up to Seattle and, you know, and play and we'll record you. And somebody saw me play. And I was like, I don't know. And I held the phone and I had a younger student. I was like, Hey, do you know Stone Gossard? He's like, yeah, man. And I go, he's asking me to play. He goes, do it. So I go, okay. I'll, you know, and we, I ended up going up there and they were great. And I realized like, wow, this is really a great experience. So I record with basically, um, you know, Pearl Jam yeah. <laughs> in Seattle. But I had to leave because I had a Friday night gig, right? So I get to the Friday night gig. I'm, I'm like, man, I just played with like, these major stars like and uh, I remember about an hour later the leader was yelling at me on stage because my sound wasn't distorted enough for achy breaky heart and I remember while he you know he wasn't like shouting but he was very unhappy and I remember just thinking like I was probably like this going you know, the music business has its real ups and downs. <laughs> it, it, it does. I, that's, that's, the, that's the great thing about the music business, because it's like, you, you know, you go from, from doing a show, you know, at the Washington Monument and having amazing catering and having this, you know, <laughs> wonderful experience. And the next day you're doing a, you know, you're doing a county fair and they have, you know, they have, uh, you know, some lunch meat and some sweaty cheese, you know, on a, on a plate there for you. And it's like, yeah, that's the great thing. You know, it's like one day you're in a, a Learjet, the next day you're in the back of a van. Right? Yeah. That's, that's the music business. And that, that's, that's the great thing on it. But I, I want to hit on a, a number of the things that you, that you, you know, hit, hit on earlier. And that's one the fact that you know really good players that continue to be productive continue to challenge themselves and don't make the same record you know over and over again and and put themselves in situations where you know they're they're challenged and and they keep you know to stimulate themselves instead of just turning into a human jukebox that gets up there and plays their hits because that's that's one of the sad things when you see artists that become a caricature of themselves and so it's it's the guys that continue to challenge themselves and then hitting upon the fact that you know, you've made this you know duo record it's like that's so hard because there's there is that tendency to want to overplay because you feel like there's all this space and it's when you're able to relax and say okay it's okay that there's space there's two musicians here we figure out how to interact with each other and how to make music 
and there's not the pressure of having to fill every second. And that's when, you know, there's space and there's beauty in that. Well, you know, it's a lot of it is Luca um, that I, I mean, sometimes I'm not sure if I mean, I think me and Luca have a real good musical chemistry. I, I mean, I'm almost sure. But, you know, he's the kind of real good artist create chemistry. Yeah. You know, like wherever they go. So, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not Luca, so I don't know if he creates chemistry wherever he goes. I don't walk in his shoes. But if I was going to relax and trust somebody, it would definitely be Luca. Because, um, you know, we, we worked, we did the last night this morning record, and that's when I really um, started to really trust him, and he's got great ideas. And I think I love that record. I mean, it's, I'm very proud of it. Um, and, you know, we've ended up producing a couple records together. And we kind of work that way together. Like, we'll play something and then, you know, we'll talk about it. We'll even say, like, yeah, let's just leave it open. And, like, it sounded good when we got lost. So, you know, let's take it from that point of view. Um, or on uh, Minute Waltz, there, Luca did a part I really liked, and I said, do that part every single time, you yeah, know, that's, and, that's, and he does. That's and, a, a very beautiful tune. So, yeah, yeah I, I, you know, I, I know Chet Atkins did it. Um, I can't pronounce her names. So, you know, it's like Los Indios Tabalala. Yes. You know those guys? <laughs> yes. Um, man, they have some good records. And yeah. they do it. It's just shredding, man. I mean, they're just like shredding on it. And I just thought, well, it's so pretty. Let's just do it slow, you know? I mean, yeah. I can't really shred like those guys. Right. So when when you and and, and Luca are, are playing together, especially on a you know, on this on this duo album, what are you thinking tonally and and then harmonically so that you're staying out of each other's way? So I mean well, I mean, I don't think it's that much thinking, really. It's just, uh, I mean, uh, you know, like, let's say somebody like Duke Levine, and I love that interview. And I mean, Duke Levine and Bobby Black and many, many players know what the music needs. Like, that's, a, like, that's their artistry in a yeah. lot of ways, aside from being great, you know, and yeah. can, you know, shred and play beautiful and make great records but they'll know what the music needs. And I think we both kind of have that sense. I mean, if it seems kind of, I, I didn't really think about it, to be honest, Zach. Like, right. um, I did ask numerous times um, at the session, I said, is my rhythm inspiring you? Yeah. And Luca would be like, oh yeah, yeah, it's great, you know? Because I'd ask, because his rhythm was so good that I started to think, like, is my rhythm, is it dropping off at all? Like, and am I fully supporting Luca like he's supporting me? Um, so that's probably the thing discussed. Um, and as far as tone goes, it was kind of like, you know, I brought my uh, Gibson 225. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do this duet record. And I'm going to play my Gibson 225. I play it all the time at home, you know. So we booked like two days. 
Um, and the first day <clears throat> I said, hey, Luca, I don't care if we have a record. Like, let's just go there and have fun and play if we feel like it and definitely uh, get sushi for lunch at the place we like and that coffee place at five with our engineer, Aaron, because that's like a little, you know, we love to do that. Yeah. And I said, will this be a really fun day? I go, so no pressure. And I think I was talking to me more than him. But so I bring the 225 and something was broken on it. I forget what. And so I'm like, okay, I'll play my telly. And for some reason, the amp was really buzzing um, and, you know, treble and, and neck. So I had to play in middle. And it was kind of annoying, but I'm used to that. Sorry, my cord's all wrapped up. I'm used to that kind of like, okay, you know. Yeah. This. So then I, I, we did that. And so I think it was one day, maybe two, and I tried to get it fixed, but then something else broke on the 225. So I'm back on the telly, middle position. Then like another month later, uh, which was the final day, I got my, my Gibson 225 all fixed. I'm like, yeah, I'll play my Gibson 225. So I bring it in, and something else immediately broke. Like, and, so, and the amp's still buzzing. And at this studio, it usually doesn't. I've recorded there many times. It's like, what's going on? It's like a New York thing. You know, like sometimes I play the 55 bar and the amp's silent. Sometimes I play the 55 bar. It's like a chainsaw. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, telly in middle position. So we thought we finished the record. And I forget what month it was, maybe August or something. And I listened to it and I was like, you know, Luca, I think it needs a couple of more songs. And I think it needs like a structure, structured songs. So we booked something in December and I had to finish it by December 12th, 20. 19 because I had to get foot surgery because I had a nerve wrapped around in this bone on the bottom of my foot and I had to stay off it for a month and a half. So we're like, we have to finish it, you know, this day. And I'm like, well, let's try to record three songs in the morning and then mix three songs in the afternoon. Wow. And I, I go, you know, it's kind of crazy. I go, but it's possible. And so we went in and I had got the Gibson 225 all fixed. And I was like, yeah, it's going to be great on these. I, it was Mona Lisa, Nice Dress, and Blade of Grass were the last three songs. And something broke on it. And I was like, man. <laughs> and so I turned on the amp. It's buzzing like hell. So I'm middle position. All the songs. <laughs> and uh, the... You know, the Gibson, I ended up, I, I brought it to Lou Faminella. And I, this is a guy who fixes guitars in Carroll Gardens, great guy. I said, Lou, I go, I want you to make this guitar bullet, bulletproof. I don't care if you have to drill bolts through the front of the body and paint it a different color. And I said, I don't care. I just yeah. want it to be bulletproof. And he ended up making it bulletproof without screwing it up, of course. But the bridge was on backwards. Um, there was like the wrong, there was a trapeze thing going on here and it was the wrong one. I mean, it was like a lot wrong with it. And that's why it kept breaking. So 
But basically, to answer your question and make a short story really long, Zach, you're a patient man. Um, <laughs> every song is my telly through my Princeton with a Celestian G10 speaker in middle position. <laughs> but I kind of managed to get some different sounds, I think. Yeah, no, again, you know, you touch and where you play and everything, but it, that was interesting because just looking at the, you know, at the album cover and they see the, you know, the two tellies and the two amps and, and part of me thinks, okay, well, you've got, you know, the, 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 the Princeton sound and you've got the Brown Deluxe, which is, you know, very different, you know, tones, you know, the, you kind of have the, the barky woody mid-range of the, of the, brown deluxe and then you've got you know maybe brass saddles and you've got steel saddles and stuff like that so so i guess there's some and then the of course the player themselves so you had some inherent you know differences because there's years ago you know when i was a college student they had uh, ray flack come in oh. you know and uh, and everyone was just kind of shaking in their boots and the uh the head of the guitar department asked me to come up and play with Ray. And so I was really shaking in my boots. And it, the thing that really struck me besides of course, being completely, you know, uh, you know, flattened by Ray Flack was the first thing he asked me is he said, he said, which, uh, which, which pickup are you going to be on? And I was, and I was like, well, I guess I'll go on the bridge. And he said, well, then I'll go on the neck. And that was one of his first considerations when he was going to play with someone that was that he had uh, that the tones were different and they weren't and they weren't going kind of down the same road, and uh, so yeah, even though I got flattened by Ray Flack, which was a great event, it still it, it kind of hit me in the fact that he was thinking from the beginning of that you know we've got to be you know treading different territory you know tonally so. Yeah, I love his, uh, I, you know, I've never heard his version, but this Tahitian Skies off Neck yeah. and Neck. Yes. Man, that's a great record. I love that record. Yeah. But um, yeah, Ray Flack. I mean, I basically know him from an instructional video. Right. More than anything, but I know uh, he came up with the interview of you and Duke. And, um, you know, he's, I mean... He has my eternal respect if he wrote that tune because I've yes he did I've tried to rewrite that tune about twelve times yeah you know it's like I'm always trying to write Sleepwalk I'm always trying to write Tahitian Skies you know there's a couple other template tunes that I think oh yeah I'm I'm always trying to write that and it, I haven't done it yet you know. Yeah. <laughs> beautiful you know melodies and the, and the, and they kind of they come out and you realize oh wait i'm playing tahitian sky or <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean I've, i i did a tune called the boat off uh table for one and it's very tahitian skies there's a song called maceo off orange very tahitian skies <laughs> like i could even name the two <laughs> like, you know full disclosure but they're not even close but it's that thing and a song like sleepwalk you know it's just one of those songs it's like i think this is in human dna yeah you know i mean aside from the performance and the recording there's just some melodies you know i mean i feel like somewhere in my mind i always hear i'm in the mood for love like somewhere like <laughs> 24 hours a day, something's going, da, 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 da. <laughs> you know, at least maybe I sound wacky, but there's some melodies. I don't know. They're just like in our DNA and sleepwalks, one of them. 
Well, on uh, so you, you've kind of you you've covered this, but you know, on on the Princeton's, you, you're uh, so do you always put those uh, the the Celestian vintage G10 in there? No, um, no. no. You also use an old the old C10Q or C10NS or whatever. I, yeah, I think it's a C10N. That's the yeah. That's right there. Um, I put, I kind of label them. People ask me all the time, are you selling your amps? Yeah. But, and I'm like, no. Um, but that says Bobby Blackface. Okay. Yeah, because I got that from Bobby Black. And okay. that was the C10N. I, I yes. mean, let's go to jimcampolongo.com. I should, but yeah. uh, it's what it is. But I think it's the C10N, which is a bit of a robust speaker. Right. And I use that on all the Little Willie stuff. Okay. Um, the uh, G, you know, 10 Celestian is right there. I'm wondering if I have two. And I think I do. I just, I mean, I don't have that many amps, but I have enough. Yeah. Um, and I usually just use that all the time. I mean, unless I want like something a little twangier, just the, but I like the G10 because it sounds kind of jazzy, for lack of a better word. I mean, it works on two guitars, for example. You know, yeah. it's, it's rounder sounding. Uh, so, no, I either have one or two amps. Yeah, I think it's just one now. I might have sold one. Yeah. I, mean, I just sell them to people I like, you know. I mean, yeah. I, now I think I'm getting down to... I don't know, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, I have six Princetons. Wow. Yeah, but I got them. Um, after I moved to New York, I had one Princeton. I brought it here. That was it. I brought like a laptop, a Princeton, and a suitcase. And one of the gigs, like the, the Princeton blew up, and nobody had one. I mean, this is like 2002, and they weren't really – People weren't really using Princeton's yet. I mean, they were, I don't know, maybe they were, but I didn't know anybody. And I thought, man, I have to get some Princeton's, another one. And so I looked and they were like five, 600 bucks. Right. And I think a year or so later, I, I, I got a publishing thing and I had a little money finally, because I, when I first moved to New York, it was, you know, it was like save the money, take the subway everywhere. Bring you know, I had a little uh, like hand truck for all my equipment. Yeah. Um, but I made some money, and I was like, you know, I got a feeling like Princeton's are going to go up in value. <laughs> um, because I figured, like I'm, I mean, I'm older than you, Zach, but we're kind of of you know, we're kind of the template in a way. And I thought, you know, everyone else is going to get sick of carrying a twin reaver. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know I did. And so, and they had everything and they sounded really good. So I bought a whole bunch for nothing more than 800 bucks. And now I wish I bought more. And I did sell like five or six of them. But Bobby sold me that, that blackface. And man, at the time it was definitely worth like eight or 900 bucks. Easy. And I, and, and I asked Bobby, you know, I go, hey, Bobby, you want to sell me that? And he was like, yeah, I'll sell it to you. And, you know, he's like so nice. And he's like, is $500 okay? <laughs> that's a and good I, price. I said, yeah, that's incredibly generous. 
and not all the time. I'm not saying I'm, you know, the best guy in the world or whatever, but that gesture, I try to reenact that. Like, I don't sell them for five, but they're pretty cheap. And, you know, if it's like a student who's great, who wants a Princeton or whatever. And now I don't email me guys, but, right. um, you know, I'll just sell. Uh, so I've sold about four or five of them, but I bought a whole bunch of them. Yeah. And and you've got them from all different, you know, eras. You've got, you know, silver face. And you, you tend to use the silver face ones as, as much as, or even more than the black face ones. I like silver face, you know. I like, I mean, I wanted to say, and I, I hope I haven't been gabbing too much, but one of the reasons why I think that amp sounds great is Bobby Black sold it to me for 500 bucks. <laughs> like, it makes that amp sing a little bit more, you know. Yeah. And, I mean, I kind of like Silverface because they weren't, like, super-duper expensive. Um, and they sound great, you know. I mean, I'm not, like, cheap or anything, but it just kind of adds to the vibe. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying if anybody buys, you know, a Blackface amp for $3,000, it has no vibe. I'm not saying that. But it kind of gives me pleasure, like, to know, like, yeah, the amp wasn't, you know, super expensive, and it sounds great, you know? Well, to hit upon that, it, so then how do you feel, you know, how do you feel going around with a 59, you know, telly, you know, around town? Do you, you know, when you take a break... You know, do do you get nervous about your telly? Yeah, I mean, we're crazy. I mean, the thing is, is like, no. I mean, I, we we were doing this gig, me and Luca, and at this place, I forget what it was called, but I mean, it was like this. Uh, they do vodka tours. We used to do the gig because no one would pay any attention, and we could practice. You know, yeah, like two guitars. And, uh, man, we'd, like, leave our stuff there and go walk around in the park. I mean, it was right by the door. And, you know, I mentioned, I go, you know, we have about, like, $40,000 worth of stuff up here. And knock on wood, but, you know, I just never want my stuff to own me. Yeah. I mean, I have toured the world with this guitar in basically a pillowcase. You know, like, I get the cheapest gig bag I could find and to kind of get like a hole on the bottom, you know, yeah. from the, the little strap switch. And they, that's the first thing it goes. And I mean, I've been very lucky, you know, and I get, I put it overhead. I mean, I'm starting to get like, I don't want to feel my heart in my throat and they're getting worse now or they were before the coronavirus. But yeah, I just, I just don't, I, we, me and Luca did a gig up in Canada and I brought the Han and it was like kind of nice to like, okay, I'm not going to like worry that I'm not bored in the, you know how they board really weird. You're like, yeah. you're in section L, you know, and you're like, what? And it's like your last to get on. So the overhead might be taken. I mean, that part of it does stress me out, but no, I, I, I figure like, this is my guitar. Um, and I want to play it. Yeah, and it, it, you know, some some telly players, you know, get into, you know, 
you know, collecting them and, uh, you know, getting to where, the, you know, they own a bunch of Telecasters, but you, you seem to have really honed in on that guitar and that, that seems to be really part of your voice. I mean, even though you'll also play the Han that you have a signature model too, but, and, and there's something to that where you really know an instrument well, where that allows you to play music instead of having to get comfortable because you're already comfortable because this is a guitar you've been playing forever. Well, that is true. I mean, right now I'm a little out of, I, I brought it out for the interview, but I've been playing this Duo Sonic and the Duo Sonic, um, I'm actually used to that now. Um, and it has tens on it and this has nines. I was like, God, these feel really slinky, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm just that way by nature, Zach, you know, like yeah. I will play the guitar that is next to me generally. I mean, I have great instruments and I'm very lucky to have them, but I mean, I have a nylon string uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, I played that, I think for about six months just because it was super handy, you know, and, and, and then, uh, you know, I'd play the telly, I'd be like, man, this neck feels really small, you know, but I mean, yeah, this is a great guitar. It's really dynamic. Uh, I mean, that's the only difference. I mean, you might know more, you, you obviously know more about this than me, but to me, it's like sometimes students bring in these Stradivarius things, you know, like, hey, I got a 56 telly or whatever. I really like that year or two. The next are a little more meaty, Yeah. Um, right? I mean, the best tellies I've ever played. And doesn't Duke have a 56? Duke has a has a fifty three Blackguard, and then he has a, a a copy of it made by the custom shop that he's you know plays out with, and then he has a sixty three. But I think he used to play a fifty five. Yeah. yeah, at one point. And I mixed up, but the two nicest guitars, the guitars I was like, hey, I want this. You yeah. know, I don't usually feel that way. We're fifty sixes, but you know, the when you start getting into vintage equipment, I mean, a lot of the guys that can't afford them, don't really know how to do what you can do on them. I mean, it, it isn't about, you know, it, it's, it's that they're dynamic. Um, and that's what takes time, I think. You know, when I get a new guitar, it's like, oh, this guitar is not as dynamic as, as mine. Um, but I have like, uh, a 56 duo sonic which is like a cheap guitar when they were making them and right. man, i think super dynamic i mean if i it's gonna speak no matter what i'm doing you know like i don't have to work to make it speak you know just, it's like that's really soft and it's it, it sounds like something where a, a brand new guitar sometimes doesn't do that and some of these guys that own the guitars, and man, I don't mean to be a jerk, you know, but it's like they don't really, they aren't really capable of that. Right. Um, and there's many things I'm not capable of. You know, I face that every day. But one thing is like, hey, I know how to be dynamic. I mean, I've been playing 45 years, you know, I mean, God help me if I can. Um, and that's why I like this guitar. Yeah. And I like... I like everything about it, you know? I mean, I still love looking at it. 
it's well, you know it's got it's got so much character and it's you know it's been you know part of you for a long time and it's just you know it's kind of like that's 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 Jim's guitar yeah yeah it the neck's a little small for me now you know and those, I, I may be crazy but those those frets look big are they are they bigger than than normal frets yeah um they i get the biggest fret i can get really yeah um and this is the second time i think it's been refretted yeah i, I like really big frets i mean uh some guys like them like them in the middle yeah uh i really don't like the original ones that like look like they're just kind of pencil drawing or something right. yeah. um, or feel that way but yeah i like really jumbo frets and is that so much because you like the feel of it or you like the fact that you can get a lot of fret dresses out of them before before you wear them no, out? It's totally a feel thing and they feel bouncier to me. Yeah. Like it makes me feel slightly more athletic. And I mean, you know, for what it's worth. And the the bending thing's easier to me. Certainly. Um, you know, you can you know, you can really bend far and it slides. But yeah, I was, I don't really go through them that much either because I have a really light touch on both sides, um, maybe to a fault, but I don't go through them. But over 25 years or whatever, um, I think it's been, this is the third refretting it got. And I was nervous about it. Um, you know, that's like starting to push it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, because you start, you know, because every, every time you, you know, pull those frets out and you have to, you know, and if they do any kind of planing or anything like that. So, yeah. I had Flip Scipio do it and I asked him, you know, uh, Flip did Paul McCartney's Hofner bass from the Beatles. Like, you know, <laughs> oh, Paul who? <laughs> yeah, to give yeah. some context. And he did Jim Campolongo's Telly. Yes. Um, but I brought it to him. I'm like, hey, can you refret this again? And he was like, you know, it took a little, about a minute. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah. done. You know, I trust trust you. And he did a great job. Yeah. And uh, do, you, do you use the little, uh, you know, uh, like Roy Buchanan picks? Do you use those little jazz picks or what do you use? No, I, you know, I used to. Um, I use yeah. them. I use those picks until about five years ago so we're talking okay. 40, 40 years yeah. i used those white fender uh heavies and they quit making them yes. uh, and and they also changed the plastic i think mm -hmm. i mean dude i'm just going by intuition but yeah. is this you're confirming it Zach? oh yes they uh they they changed the uh the the manufacturer that was uh, making them for them you know changed and and yes the yeah so they're they're not the same you know not the same pick anymore i'm so you know not to diss fender because we all love them but yeah. uh so i used them for about five years even though i was like i really don't like this you know like like i said i'm kind of like that like yeah i'm a real creature of habit so I was like, I don't really like this pick anymore. And then it, this one of the straws that was ready to break the camel's back was they didn't make them white anymore. Right. And and man, that's big. You know, like I always say, I wish ever I wish I had the option 
to get pink or something of everything. Like everything's black and we play in these dark stages and you drop your string winder or whatever and it's like the twilight zone. Yeah, it's lost. I just bought a pink suitcase. Yeah, because you can find it. Oh man, it girl comes down the turnstile, you're like, there's my suitcase. That's right. So when they stopped making the white ones, I took it personally, but I was like, ah, you know, I'll just keep using them. Anyway, a student comes over, a guy named Justin. Darn, I wish I could remember his last name. He's real good, too. And he's like, you should check this pick out. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, oh, okay. And it's, uh, what are they called? Jeez, I, I should know. They're Fusion. I forget the brand name. I got it bookmarked. I, I just bought like a whole bunch of them. Um, sorry, guys. No, you're good. Okay. Um, I got them bookmarked. <laughs> Where is that bookmark? Oh, here it is. V picks. Okay. I use a V pick, okay. a Fusion model, and it's a little bigger. It's much bigger than the Fender heavies, like kind of Buchanan used. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I always flirted with that. I'd pick up a Fender Heavy and go, what am I using this little thing for? But then the hybrid deal, like, you know, it felt like, you know, two guys in a one-bedroom apartment, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I like that analogy. <laughs> and then I'd be like, ah, I'm going back to the little guy. But, you know, and this thing, I mean, he gave it to me and I, I used after like 30 seconds, I was like, I love this pick. And so he goes, you can have it. And it ended up, sorry, I got a nicotine lozenge going here. I quit smoking a while back. Well, that's good. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so they're five bucks each. And I'm like, Jesus, why do I like these? But they're totally worth it, man. They're great. They're just big enough to where my fingers, you know, don't, you know, I could, you know, finger pick or do the hybrid picking thing. And man, they like do not wear out. I mean, there's sometimes, you know, I'm like, and it's like afterwards I look at it and I'm like, it looks, it's like a virgin pick. Right. So, um, they make a real good product. I'm real happy to use them. And, uh, that's what I use, V-Pick Fusion model. Yeah. They have a bunch of models. And on their website, there's like famous dudes. Like, um, I can't remember, but some country guys. Like, not Brent Mason, maybe, I don't know, like a Brent yeah. Mason types. And uh, the guy from ZZ Top. Yeah. You know, so um, they're good. Let's uh, let's talk about your, uh, your Patreon page. So... One, you know, of course, I had, I'd seen some of your posts. And then, of course, Duke talked about how you had kind of been uh, coaching, mentoring him into this. So t tell, tell us about, you know, you know, getting, you know, what got you into Patreon and, and how that's, you know, how that's done for you. And then, you know, and, and you know, kind of pushing uh, Duke into it also. Well, you know, it started when... Um, I have like a young, I, you know, I, I, I don't do him any justice, but like a young millennial friend. Like, and sometimes he speaks a language that I don't really understand. You know, like 
whatever. I, 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 you know, he's a young guy. He's, he's you know, I, I, you know, he's in that world. But anyway, right. he said, you should do a Patreon. And I said, what's a Patreon? And, you know, he explained it to me. And I said, yeah, I don't really want to do that. You know, I go, I did a Kickstarter once and it was like a real pain and I'll never do it again. And like, God love everybody who, you know, donated. But it felt like begging, you know, yeah. and uh, to me, and I'm real touchy about that, you know. Um, and uh, he goes, no, it's not begging. And I go, well, I'll check it out. So and I ended up going to Italy. This is like two years ago. And uh, I came back from Italy, and every time I go to Italy, I've been there like four times, I'm like, I want to move to Italy. <laughs> I mean, I love New York and my life and everything, but, you know, if, if, have you been yes, there? Yes, I've, I've been to Italy, and uh, you know, I, I love Europe. I, I spent uh, six weeks in Spain last year, and I feel the same way about Spain. I, you know, I, I go there, and it's like, I, I want to live here. I don't want to live in the U.S. anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, with, you know... Me too. And and when I'm in Italy, my feet feel like they're magnetized to the ground or something. Yes. You know, like, I don't know. It's so anyway, I came back and I was like, man, I want to move to Italy. So I like starting two years ago, I thought I, I want to be geographically more independent. So I got into this. So I checked out this Patreon thing and I said, you know, my friend's name is Joe. I was like, Joe, I don't know. It seems like begging. And he goes, well, he goes, most people just give five, 10 bucks. And he goes, put so much stuff up there that it's not begging, that it's like a great deal. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, you got a point. So I started it and, you know, I really enjoyed it. I mean, some of the technological stuff, like I saw Dukes and Dukes like looks really good. I mean, mine, I just do on my cell phone and you know, there's no tab streaming across the middle, bottom, you know, <laughs> the bar is so high, right? Yeah. But most importantly, like the last six, seven months, like it, it's like the one of the things right now that makes me feel useful. Right. You know, I mean, aside from this interview and things like this, it's like we can't gig and, you know, but it's kind of a porthole into being useful. So I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm not, you know, uh, making millions, but, you know, it's something coming in and, and it's a reason to think and have some pressure every week and go, okay, what can I do this week? What am I going to do next week? Right. And I really like it. Um, the everyone's totally cool on my Patreon and, they seem to be satisfied with what I'm teaching. So for me and Duke, because that was part of your question, I just think Duke's like, you know, underrated. And I'm like, especially, I mean, he, I've seen him play like, like he seems like the guy in Tom Petty on steroids to me. And that's, you know, what, what's that guy's name, Campbell? Oh, Mike Campbell. Mike Campbell, like Mike Campbell on steroids and i think mike campbell's great yeah but like duke's steel guitar stuff is like completely unique you know um i know we agree i could tell you were a fan oh, oh yeah i mean i you know he 
he was uh yeah the the way that he that he bends strings and the 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 muscle memory or whatever it is the touch that he has when he when he's doing those uh those pedal steel kind of bends is 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 ridiculous and yes i've i've uh, loved his albums for a long time so yeah and they're and as you said they're cinematic they're just good songs right like i mean you know no, there's so much good music you know i'm not going to put on like some guitar record that doesn't have good songs on it that has great guitar you know i mean uh, um and Duke's records have really good melodic music. Um, but anyway, so I almost feel like in another life, I could be like Duke Levine's uh, manager, you know? <laughs> so, you know, he, I think he, he asked me about the Patreon thing and I felt really inspired to like, yeah. oh, Duke, you should do it. It's really easy. And he was like, he asked me, he goes, well, I don't know what I teach. And I, and I named like three things. Like I said, <laughs> you could teach this that I saw you do. You could teach this. And I go, and you could call me every week. I go, and I'll tell you what you could teach. You know, so I was really aggressive. And he doesn't need it. You yeah. know, he's so humble, man. His Patreon looks great. And this, you know, he did the Joe Maphis tune, Laurieann. And yes. Right. But that's kind of. You know, and I think when he was going to um, launch it, you know, he was he, he called me up and asked me, uh, what? I go, I just go here, here and here. And, you know, but yeah, I was kind of a cheerleader, but he might be giving me more credit than I deserve, you know. But well, I'm just a fan and want the world to know about Duke Levine. You know, it's great. Yeah. Well, the... Uh... Who, who of your heroes, you know, one, one of the things that's, that's interesting, well, I guess the question would be, if you could check out anyone's Telecaster or guitar in general, who would you want, whose Tele would you want to check out or whose guitar? Well, I just thought like Bo Diddley square guitar, but that's not a Tele. Um, no, but I, sh I shouldn't have limited it to Telecasters. No, that's no. just, I mean, that's no. just showing my, uh, you know. That would... That might be one. I mean, that's what popped into my head. It's kind of a weird yeah. one, but, you know, and maybe he had like five of them, but like Bo Diddley square guitar would be a cool guitar. Um, maybe, uh, you know, Hank Garland's Birdland. Um, yeah. Definitely Nancy, the, the Roy Buchanan telly. Um, yeah. I've read people talking about that guitar and they said it wasn't an extraordinary guitar. Yeah. But which I found interesting, but it's sure a good looking guitar. Yeah. It yeah, because especially like on the uh on the uh, on the back cover of, of second album. Right. Yes, that's the one where you really got the first really the view of that guitar and it was like you know, I wanted to put that up on my wall because yeah. like, I, I loved that that back cover. But anyway, you, you you hit on another thing that's that's you know I I kind of asked the question, but kind of had almost had a response in my head, and that's that all these you know famous cool guitars. It's so many of them weren't that great, or maybe they were they were pretty good guitars. But the the thing was it was that the person that owned it was comfortable with it they're the ones that made it special. Those, you know, it's like friends of mine that have played Dwayne Allman's, 
you know, guitars or, or played all, you know, you get the chance to pick up some, you know, and you expect there to be magic in the guitar, but the magic's in the person. And yes, they, they felt comfortable with it. But Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, there's something to be said for a good vintage guitar, but I think it's like a relationship, you know, like you have a relationship with it. And sometimes this guitar kind of, you know, the I've worn it out in a lot of ways that, that both sides have worn out and I really have to be careful when I play either outside strings, like this happens, you know, yeah. real easy. Same thing here. And I, I, I've pushed them on these uh, threads, like as much as I can without it being wacky. Um, and sometimes I'm like, you know, that would get annoyed and mad at it. And uh, down in first position, mm -hmm. it feels a little crowded mm -hmm. for my hand. Uh, so I wish sometimes the neck was bigger, but yeah. you know, it's like a relationship to me. Um, you know, I mean, if anybody was in a relationship with me, they'd be like, well, you know, Jim's very irritating. He watches boxing really loud, you know, or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, there's yeah. no, nothing's perfect. Right. And so that's kind of how I look at it. And I bet like Roy just had a, like a relationship with that guitar. And he strikes me as the kind of guy who was like pretty satisfied with what he had, you yeah. know, um, which was a fine vintage instrument that he made magical, you know. So that's kind of how I look at it. But that said, like, um, maybe I should be a little more curious uh, sometimes um, about guitars and equipment because um, I'm not naturally curious about that. Um, one thing I'm really curious, like what I'm curious about is how somebody fingers something. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, I, I've been messing around with Baby Guitar by Hank Garland, super hard. I'll never play it as fast. And it's because I asked Duke Levine, what do you practice right now? And so one of the first questions I ask people, yeah, like, what are you practicing? How do you practice? And he said, yeah, you know, uh, you know, he's usually he's like humble, but he said baby guitar. And I asked Luca, I go, hey, Luca, I, I, I had a feeling Luca hadn't learned it. And I said, do you have a transcription? So I'm playing it. And I, I was talking to Luca the other day and I was like, hey, I wanted to ask you, do you play an open E or do you play a closed E? He's like, no, definitely an open E. And those are the things that I find really interesting uh, on guitar and what I kind of seek out is how do you, fi everybody fingers things differently because the guitar is like 3D chess. Right. Because you can play the same note in so many places. Yeah. And, and you know, there's three, you know, uh, you know, three fingerings for that diminished chord. The third one, I probably don't know on the bottom four strings. I Maybe I'd better do that tomorrow morning. But, you know, there's a different fingering for everything. And, and that's what I'm interested in. But like a guy like Luca, on the record, on two guitars, he plays a 175. I think he plays a Sheridan, he plays that Tele, which is a, like a parts caster, I think. And he played a couple different amps. And to be honest, I don't even know what, like, I know this because I had to ask him for another interview uh, that, for a magazine. And I was like, yeah, okay, come here and sit here and let's play. You know, and the ES-175 sounded 
Yeah, it sounded great. You know, I was like, man, that sounds great. Let's let's now let's get to work. You know, so I don't know. There was a question in there, and I feel like now I'm just no, no. You you've you've answered it, and uh, yeah, there there's with with the guitar. It's like there's so many different places. And it sounds different, you know, where, you know, even though you you can play the same middle C multiple places on the guitar, it sounds different. And depending on, yeah, I think you hit upon a, a good point is, is fingerings. And then also that's a, a great question. You know, what are, what are you practicing right now? So, yeah, yeah I mean, it, that to me is the, like, okay, you're a person who's been playing 35, 40 years um, how do you practice? When do you practice? Yeah. Uh, do you practice at night? Do you practice in the morning? Do you start with scales? Do you just, yeah. you know? So answer, answer that question for us, Jim. Oh, for you personally. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> I set myself up here. Yeah, okay. you did. <laughs> you um, fed me a great question. Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, you're the best interviewer on the internet, so I'm not suggesting you haven't asked this. Right now, obviously, I'm practicing baby guitar, and uh, that's that's a real handful. I mean, and uh, the other thing I've been practicing, like first, I was saying uh, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and dessert. Like breakfast is, um, I go through uh, progression, like like in G major, like we got, I hope I could do it. Sorry, a little rusty. Okay, so that's G major, and then this is Lydian, I guess. So I'll do, do that in the three minors and the major up chromatically and that's kind of my warm-up that's breakfast but it's more like sit-ups you know yeah and then I usually just go into like what I'm working on like I've, I've I um I was trying to do a little reading uh but I'm really lazy about that and sometimes I don't like that it takes me so long like I think this could be more productive you know yeah. because I want it I I feel a little anxious um and um so yeah, this 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 week I'm working on baby guitar, and I think I have it. You know, it took me a long time. Like, well, where do you play this? Um, and before that, uh, the week before, maybe maybe for like two or three weeks, I was playing uh, "G Baby Ain't I Good to You," and I heard a Barney a Barney no uh, um, Kenny Burrell off. Uh, Midnight Blue, and I love that record. You know, it's I always play that record for my students because I'm like, you know, he just kind of plays pentatonic stuff, even though he played with like John Coltrane. Yeah, and that tune, the G Baby, I was like, I really like this. And sometimes I will play a song for like a month, like one song, um, and I try to like exhaust every possibility of that song like well what's the best key where's the best place to, to play the melody 
um, okay, chord melody, then how's it sound if Buddy Emmons played it? Like, what would he do and is it possible? And I mean, that's like a month, you know, and I've done that pretty much, you know, my entire career. It started with Sleepwalk, actually. Um, I played Sleepwalk for like two months. And, but it's not like I just do the same thing over. I explore all the octaves and harmonics and I just try and exhaust every possibility of the tune. And for some reason, I don't get bored. Um, I read in a Lee Konitz, Konitz interview uh, that he said he could play all the things you are for the rest of his life. And I kind of related to that. You know, and, and I respected him for saying it. Like, it's dense enough to where you never explore all the possibilities. And uh, so that's kind of what I do. But I do the warm-up thing, and those change. It's usually some weak, something I'm weak on. And I always try to apply them to something. You know, like if I'm doing the a, uh, a melodic, would it be? Yeah melodic minor scale, I'll think, okay, this is D7 flat five as well. And, oh, I can, that's the second chord of do-do-do-do-do-do, uh, um, do, you know, this one, what's it called? It's a Duke Ellington thing, you know. Whatever that's called. Like, <laughs> yes, I'm blanking on it too. Yeah, me too. I blank yeah. on everything now. Um, but, you know, so I want to make sure I can, and I'll transpose, you know, like, so yeah. it isn't just do, 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 you know, I'll think, how do I tell the story, blah, de, blah, blah. Is that like, sophisticated lady or satin doll? What is, I, it's, I, it, take the A train. Hit the A train, golly. Wow. Yeah, I yeah. kind of played it bad, but. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Well, Jim, we, we. <laughs> we've got we've gone two hours so uh we 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 should cut it cut it here okay but, but jim i really appreciate you doing this this was a, a a real treat and uh you know you've you've been on the short list for a long time and i hope you know to uh you know i hope that uh you know when uh when things you know open up again that you'll uh, you'll come to nashville and maybe we can you know do something in person too so that because that would be a lot of fun but uh, i i'd love to do that yeah, i hope uh, sorry uh, to go ahead no i was gonna say i uh you know i hope that uh you know the viewers will check out your patreon you know page and check out you know the the, the lessons that you have and uh and you know of course there's tons and tons of great clips of you playing and uh, you know, of course, Duke was the the last you know guest on, and there there's a great clip of of you and Duke playing uh, a Folsom Prison, which is really uh, interesting. You know, seeing the the two of y'all uh, you know kind of bounce off each other. So you know, people need to check that out. But uh, yeah, and then of course the the the, the duet you know record that you just uh, put out, people need to uh, they need to check it out. So. Jim, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to, to sit and, and, and talk with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks. It's an honor. And like I said, I'm a fan of your show. And, you know, it's really, really an honor just to be a part of it. Like, you know, you have some of the greatest guitarists ever on your show. And your interviews are 
so informed and with kindness and a good vibe. You know, they're just great, great interviews. Well, thank you, Jim. And I'm, I'm glad this, this is part of that collection. So it means a lot to me. So thank you. You bet.